Hey, it's Jackie. And as you know, there's been a whole lot of discussion about mental health, emotional health. And so I thought it'd be good to talk to an expert and figure out what exactly is all this about emotions. What did we learn about it from our faith communities? And what does the Bible have to say about emotions? And is there something we can start to do to move toward emotional health? To help us have this conversation, I've invited Becky Castle Miller. She's a PhD student at Wheaton College, and she's studying in New Testament. Her dissertation is on the emotions in the Gospel of Luke. So today, we're going to learn how to become emotionally healthy people. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. So we get to welcome Becky this morning to talk to us about emotional health. We're so thankful you're here. I'm so excited to talk to you, Jackie. I know we're both Northern students. We know a lot of people in common, but it's great to actually get to talk to you live. So I got to tell you, when I uh, first heard about you and your work, I was like, huh, never heard of anybody doing a dissertation on the emotions in the Gospel of Luke or the emotions in Scripture, period. So I would love for you to share with me and our audience, like, how did you end up studying this? That is a very long story. So I will tell you the short version. Uh, emotion in scripture is a relatively new field. Uh, one of the challenges with starting my dissertation research is that there are not a lot of books. There's probably five or six key monographs or academic books that address this topic. So I get to be kind of the leading edge of a new angle on biblical studies, which I'm really excited about. Um, I have been interested in emotional health probably almost 20 years. Um, I grew up in pretty conservative fundamentalist Christian circles. I was homeschooled and I was in a variety of different churches. So I got a lot of great diverse church experiences, but it was more through the homeschooling curriculum and youth groups and certain conferences that I took on beliefs that I shouldn't trust my emotions, that my emotions would lead me astray, um, that in fact, doing the opposite of what my emotions were motivating me toward is probably the best way to be godly. Mm. So I did a lot of emotional numbing and emotional stuffing and was just very emotionally unhealthy because I, I didn't even pay attention to or access my emotions. Um, so when I was in my mid-20s, um, I had undiagnosed postpartum depression after my first two children were born. I have five now. And um, I was really struggling emotionally. I didn't have a category for mental health or emotional health. So I didn't know that I had postpartum depression. Um, I just knew that 
motherhood wasn't everything I was promised it would be, you know, like the pinnacle of my life I was just going to love. I was really struggling. Um, and so I started, thanks to friends telling me I needed to get help and telling me how to get help, um, I was able to get diagnosed and start getting treated for postpartum depression. And at the same time, I was processing what I learned in the church about emotions. I started reading some wonderful, some of the early spiritual abuse blogs that also had a lot of good content on emotional health and emotional abuse and recovering from emotional and spiritual abuse and all the emotions involved in that. So I started getting a vocabulary for emotional health and mental health and, and better spiritual health. So that was, yeah, my mid to late 20s and I'm almost 42 now. Uh, so I've just been interested in that topic for a really long time. About 10 years ago, I started trying to write a book about Jesus emotions because I was reading the gospels. Um, I was at an international church in the Netherlands at the time, and we were reading the gospels over and over. And I started to see how emotional Jesus was mm. and how little the church talked about this or tried to emulate him in that. And when I started to trying to write that book, I realized I didn't have the research skills to do that. Um, and I also at the same time was sensing a call to be a pastor as um, as my perspective on women in ministry changed through people like Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie and Scott McKnight, and I realized women could be pastors, I realized God had been calling me to be a pastor, but I hadn't understood that calling because I didn't think that was a path open to me. So with all of that going on, I realized I needed to go to seminary because if I was going to pastor, I needed to get an education for it. And it would give me the research skills to do biblical studies properly to write a book about Jesus and emotions. So I started at Northern with Scott McKnight. I was in the first MANT cohort in 2016. I was still in the Netherlands and it was available on Zoom. And so I was able to go to seminary from across the ocean, which was incredible. And incredible. I came in knowing that my thesis, my master's thesis was going to be on emotions and discipleship. Um, so I wrote that 50,000-word master's thesis, finished in 2020, and realized I still wasn't done exploring. Uh, we moved to Wheaton, Illinois, and I got to know Esau McCauley, and um, I was able to apply to the Wheaton PhD program, and I'm his, his first PhD student. Me and my friend Chris started together with Dr. McCauley. So now I'm doing a dissertation on emotions in Luke specifically because a dissertation has to be a very narrow topic. Um, so I'm excited to go deeper into this and eventually, finally, someday write that book about Jesus and emotions. For the <laughs> 20 years later. Yeah. <laughs> you sound just like me. Oh, I got to go get a degree in that. Um, yep. so we're going to talk in a minute cause I know our audience is now going, uh, yeah, I want to hear about what you discovered in Luke and John, which we will get to in a minute. So everybody hang on. Um, but I want to back up a little bit and talk about before we go there, I want to talk about, um, how we got here, where we are emotionally stunted. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's a whole, the history of that is huge. Right. But let's just talk about, you know, I I married, um, I grew up in a home that was actually, there was, there was abuse, mm -hmm. but we were allowed emotions and a whole range of emotions and they weren't restricted in how they were expressed. Um, I think that's fascinating. And I would love to do some research on how I grew up in a verbally abusive home and yet was handed some really healthy things from that. Um, wow. 
I know, kind of weird. But I married a man who grew up in the conservative evangelical world. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So I had none of this baggage from the church, right? Um, and I've been married to Steve. He's a great guy. I've been married to him for 35 years. And for years, I would say to him, so how do you feel about that? And then he would start to give me a report of what he was doing about it. And I would listen. And then I'd say, well, that's wonderful. Thank you for the report. But I want to know how you feel about it. And he would just give me this funny look like, feel? What are you talking about? And so we've had to do work as a couple for him to actually figure out what are emotions, mm -hmm. where are they in him? How does he access them or develop them so that we can have an emotionally healthy marriage? Um, and, and some of the teachings it turns out that he learned, I suspect you did too, and many of our listeners did too. They listened to people like um, Tim LaHaye, mm -hmm. who said basically emotions are our enemy. And then Dobson was a big guy for a while, and he said emotions can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. And when I came into the faith in the 1990s, I was swimming around in these churches and I was hearing things like, uh, you know, women are emotional, mm -hmm. too emotional, by the way, bad. And men are not, um, and in that having any kind of fear or anxiety was a sin. And of course, then they would quote to us Paul's verse in Philippians. Mm -hmm. So tell us like a little bit about this teaching, how we got to a point. What are these teachings that got us to a point where we were emotionally constipated, if you will? Right. So I'm not a historian. Um, so I don't know that I have the historical research skills to do the history of this justice, but I have tried to use my biblical studies research skills to at least explore it a little bit. Uh, in my master's thesis, I started digging into where these teachings came from. I've got a chapter on that. And then I am working with my friend Heather Griffin right now. We're going to start a podcast that traces the emotion of sorry, the history of emotion teaching in the church, and then starts to dismantle some of those unhealthy teachings. So we've been doing some historical digging as well. It goes back to the Enlightenment, but I don't. We don't want to start the history lesson that far back. But the idea that rationality is king over emotion is an Enlightenment idea. It's not a Christian idea. It's a secular mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has so influenced Western culture that we hear it in the church and just accept it. Uh, and it really doesn't take the ancient Jewish emotion concepts that we see in scripture into uh, into account at all. Um, so it's a prioritizing of cult our culture that we've inherited um, as a Western country um, over actual biblical uh, perspectives on emotions. Um, so you see in, for example, the Four Spiritual Laws tract from uh, Campus Crusade uh, written by Bill Bright in the, in the mid-1900s. Yep. Um, there are four spiritual laws, but really there are five because on the last page of the tract, which has been printed, I think, two billion times. Wow. Um, there is a train and the train has the engine as facts and then the next car is faith and the caboose is feelings. And basically the fourth or the fifth spiritual law is don't trust your feelings. Mm -hmm. We need to base our 
faith on the facts, the truth of God's word. And if we put our faith in those facts, then feelings will follow, but we don't need to have any feelings to have faith. If we put the the train the other way around, it doesn't work according to this page in the tract. Um, and I think it came out of actually a healthy place, which was a backlash against some of the early great revivals that uh, in some cases emphasized an emotional, affective experience as proof of salvation. And so people who didn't have that experience were worried uh, that they we weren't lost saved. You there. Oops. Are you okay. there, Becky? Yep. Can you hear me? Uh-oh. Um, okay, there you are. I'm back again? Yeah, I don't know what happened. Weird. What did, was the last thing you heard? Um, the revival and this okay. uh, feeling of faith. Okay. So in some of the early great revivals, people had to have an emotional experience and that became culturally normal. And if you didn't have that experience, some people will worry that they weren't saved. So I think this idea originally came out as a helpful thing. Billy Graham perpetuated this teaching in his crusades. You don't have to feel anything to know that you're saved. And I think that's true. But the tract has continued to be printed with the same words and the same message for 70 years now. And we understand feelings and emotions and our context is different now. And so now when someone reads, don't trust your feelings, they're reading that as a complete denial of emotion mm -hmm. instead of an assurance of salvation. So I think it went from a good message to now being actually a damaging message. So Bill Bright was influential in the lives of James Dobson and Tim LaHaye, who were writing in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And Tim LaHaye wrote a really influential book called Spirit-Controlled Temperament that's been printed millions of times in multiple languages. I think I read that when I first I'm sure you did. Yep. And yep. – I had when I was in the Netherlands, I had a student from Nigeria who had read that book and been influenced by it in Nigeria. Um, and it was actually based on secular Greco-Roman philosophical ideas about the temperaments and the humors. Again, not actually based on scripture, but it became really popular in Christian circles. And he flat out calls fear and anxiety sins and says that they come from the root of selfishness. Um Dobson wrote a wow. book in the 80s called Emotions, Can You Trust Them? that was kind of like a little softer, a little nicer, a little more psychologically based, but also still perpetuated this idea that women are emotional. They need to calm themselves and submit to the men around them, and you can't really trust your emotions. Um, he had some valid things to say about fear and anger. Like the book isn't all bad, but there's enough bad in there that I would never recommend it. Right, right. Um, and so those – authors and teachers influenced the Christian leaders who were growing up in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And so this message has just continued to perpetuate. There, are, If you just Google search or YouTube search sermons about facts, faith, and feelings, people are still using that framework. Um, and so it's become prevalent in the Christian waters in the U.S. due to these teachings that go back quite a way, and really none of them are based on scripture. So tell me, um, what do you think resulted? You've shared your story a little bit about how that impacted you. I've shared a little bit about how it impacted my husband and then therefore my marriage. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, this way we were taught about emotions has any correlation uh, upon um, 
the abuse, spiritual abuse, but just abuse in general that we see um, from church leaders. I mean, we're seeing a ton of it right now. Right. I'm sure it's always been there. It's just being reported more and more. Right. And our listeners may not be aware of that because one thing I know is most of the average person is not like Googling social media like you and I are and seeing what's happening to churches and people. But there is a tremendous amount of abuse coming to light. Right. Do you think there's any correlation there? Yes, absolutely. When when people are taught to distrust their emotions by their spiritual leaders, when their God-given intuition and fear responses kick in, which God gave them and created them with to keep them safe from unhealthy people and bears and snakes and, and all that stuff, but also spiritual snakes, God gave us those instincts. And when we are taught to distrust our emotions, we ignore that God-given safety mechanism and go back to trusting the leaders who are telling us don't listen to that fear sense or that intuition. So it is a way for spiritually abusive leaders to keep control over people because they have taught them to numb, ignore, and suppress and not be in touch with the emotions God created them with. Um, Even to second-guess themselves, right? Because they're thinking to themselves, there must be something wrong with me. Right. I'm I'm sinning because I'm anxious. I'm sinning because I'm afraid. I'm sinning because I'm angry. I need to police myself and my emotions, which plays right into the hand of an abuser. If if a, a victim is policing themselves and controlling themselves out of fear of displeasing the leader or God or the leader in the speaking for God, which gets really muddled up in spiritual abuse, then the leader, the abusive leader, has less work to do. Um, right. It is a it's a very common abuse tactic to get people to keep themselves small and quiet. Uh, abusers will abuse and control and manipulate with the least amount of effort needed. And they will only... Go ahead. Yeah, I want to know, I'm thinking about this. What Do you think this has any connection to, this is any connection to how we talk to women about being submissive to their husbands even Mm -hmm. and allows for abuse to happen in that dynamic? Absolutely. How, How does that play out emotionally like? Well, the person who's done the most research on this is Sheila Gregoire um, at the Bear Marriage blog and podcast, and she's done research studies of 20,000 and then 7,000 evangelical women. And so she actually has the statistics showing how these teachings keep women in in abusive marriages. Um, And as someone who's done a lot of pastoral care with abuse survivors, I have seen the same things their research found. when women are told to distrust their emotions and to submit to men in authority, they are much more likely to stay in abusive marriages and to stay in abusive churches. And I think that those churches are incentivized to keep women uh, unaware of abuse dynamics because when women start to identify the abuse dynamics in their relationships, they also start to identify the abuse dynamics in their churches and they Mm -hmm. leave their marriages as they should and they leave their churches as they should. And so for a leader who wants to keep people and keep control over people, um, preventing people from reading about abuse, understanding abuse dynamics, understanding emotions and boundaries and emotional health. Like an emotionally healthy person is much harder to control because they are in self-control. They don't cede that control to someone else. Mm. Um, So all of this plays right into an abuser's uh, playbook. 
So, so there's some people out here listening to this right now um, that are now wondering if that's them. Absolutely. And it takes a really long time to identify it when you're in it. So one step, if you were to say, because you've done pastoral care, so have Mm -hmm. I, what's the one step if the person listening, we aren't sitting with them right now, but what would you say? If you are questioning whether an interpersonal relationship you're in with a parent, a sibling, a boss, a spouse um, is abusive. One of the best tools I've seen is Leslie Vernick's V-E-R-N-I-C-K. Leslie Vernick's website has a relationship quiz analysis tool for determining if your relationship is abusive or not. And it also, it's very nuanced and subtle and it helps you pick apart various forms of abuse. You know, someone might be physically abusive, but not otherwise. Someone might be spiritually abusive, but not physically. Someone might be emotionally or sexually abusive, but not verbally abusive. So it helps you pick about the different types of abuse and identify whether someone is uh, acting out of an entitlement to control you or not. Excellent. Um, And I'll I'll put that link up so that people maybe that didn't hear the spelling or didn't catch it because you're driving in the car or whatever, Mm -hmm. I'll have it available on the podcast so that they can get to that. Thank you for that. We've always got to say to people, hey, here's where you go if you have a sense, right? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, this, I love that you brought up that this anti-emotion, if you will, is not something that just has been brought forth in the church, that actually it's from the enlightenment period and it's part of our Western culture and absolutely is. And so I wanted to just share a story um, that highlights that and then mm-hmm. and then talk a little bit more about what do we do with all this. But uh, my daughter came home the other day and we, to my house. We were having dinner and she was sharing about this gathering of women that were talking. She was a part of this group and in that group was a gal who was a chemical engineer and she was talking about how she had this problem in her business and Madison offered a solution. And the woman kind of tilted her head and kind of looked at Madison like, huh, I didn't expect that to come out of your mouth. And that's because uh, my daughter, among many other things, is a potter. She makes pottery, ceramics. Mm -hmm. And this engineering lady didn't think that Madison, the artist, had any logic in her. (laughs) So Madison was just furious over this. She said, you know, mom, we've created a dichotomy, a dichotomy that isn't even true, that people are either logical or emotional. And then we give value to the person who's logical, right? We give value to logic and we devalue emotions. Um, and, the, and then she said, those who have logical minds are more valuable than those who have in- emotional intelligence. And, and I think actually that's true. Um, we, we have assigned emotions to be feminine and, and right. men, men are unemotional, except they do have two emotions that I'm aware of, which is anger and jealousy. Those are the two emotions men are allowed to have. And because we value masculine virtues over feminine virtues, we, we value logic over emotions. Again, all of that is a dichotomy that isn't even true. Humans are both logical and emotional and everything right. in the middle. Um, but I love how she concluded. She goes, you know, the truth is our emotions are data. They are information that informs of us of things we need to know. Would you agree with that? 
they are data, but even more than that, they are constructions. Um, emotions are not something that happened to us. They are something we construct in our minds and bodies. So there is a huge debate in emotion research about what happens first. Do you feel a physical sensation and then your mind makes meaning out of it? Or do you make the meaning and the, the feelings and sensations follow? Um, the idea that they are purely data um, kind of leads lends more toward the, the idea that um, the emotions tell us something that's happening to us, which is <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how scientific to get here. <laughs> it's a yes and a no. Keep going. <laughs> it's a yes and a no. Um, <laughs> let me back up and say quickly what emotions are according to the latest scientific theories and right. then answer the question about what your daughter said and then get back to the dichotomy between rationality and emotionality. Great. Um so I am working in my dissertation, I'm using two amazing, brilliant female scientists named Lisa Feldman Barrett and Bacha Mesquita, B-A-T-J-A-M-E-S-Q-U-I-T-A. She is Dutch, um, which I love because I spent eight years in the Netherlands. <laughs> so uh, Barrett has come up with a theory called the theory of constructed emotion. And she is in like the top 1% of cited scientists in the world. She's written like 260 peer reviewed papers. She edits the handbook on emotions. She is, she's like the emotion researcher. Um, and she has done hard science lab experimentation, brain imaging, et cetera. And her theory is that Emotions are the meaning that we make from the sensations in our bodies, and they are based on our brain function of prediction, our concept system, and our language and culture and life experiences. So emotions are very complex, they're very complicated, and they take place in kind of all regions of our brain at one time. There's not one part of our brain that's responsible for emotions. So in her theory, if it's correct, which I think it is, there is no difference between our thought processes and our emotion processes because they are intertwined. So there is no rational side of our brain or emotional side of our brain. Thinking and emoting go together because emotions are concepts. Just like you have a concept of a pine tree or a concept of an apple you have a concept of anger or mm -hmm. sadness that you've developed over time from seeing lots of instances of apples and pine trees and angry people. And so when you feel certain things, you have been socialized by your culture, your parents, your church, wider Western culture to say, I am feeling angry now. And so Mosquito's work is on the social construction of emotion and how cultures shape emotions. And she shows how every culture has a different set of emotions that they are enculturated to construct. So emotions do very much reveal what we value, what we prioritize, and what our goals are. And so in that sense, they are absolutely data, but they are also constructed by us. Barrett likes to say, you are the architect of your own experience and you can change your emotions, not in the moment you're experiencing it because it happens in microseconds. Mm -hmm. 
But over time, you can learn new emotion concepts and then you will begin to construct them. And the more you practice an emotion and focus on an emotion, the more your brain will predict it and therefore the more often you will construct it. All right. Does that make sense? Wonderfully said. Perfectly. It makes sense. Very well said. You put the cookies on the lower jar, or the okay. lower shelf for us. Thank you. That's a summary of two major books that I've, I've worked through. <laughs> that was brilliant. I okay. loved it. Okay. Keep going. So emotions are data um, and they are constructions. So if I am paying attention and I notice that I'm angry, um, I can investigate that emotion and say, what am I angry about? Well, I'm angry that I didn't get a promotion I thought I should have had. And because I'm an American woman, I have been trained that I have a right Hold to on, advance. We've lost you again. There you go. Are you I don't there? know what's uh, yep, yeah, I'm here. That's weird. Okay. So I'm an American woman. I have been trained that it is my right to advance in my career, that I ought to be afforded the same um, opportunities and pay as men. And so I am angry and it is to some extent socially acceptable for me to politely express that anger to my boss, um, but I can't appear unhinged or like really angry. I still as a woman have to kind of control my anger to be within social bounds, but I can express my frustration and my disappointment and kind of my firmness of asking for what I want. So. I've identified my goals and my values. I want to advance my field. I want to get promoted. I didn't get a promotion. Someone else got it. I'm angry. What am I going to do about it? My body's activated. I've processed it. I'm going to write a first draft of an angry email, and then I'm going to edit it so I sound calm and controlled, and then I'm going to send it. So that whole process is emotion construction and emotion analysis, and the more emotionally healthy I am and the more emotional granularity I have. Like, can I be precise? Am I angry or am I more specifically irate? Am I full of rage? Am I full of wrath? Am I irritated? Um, what, am what, I tired? Am I tired, right? <laughs> like, is there other stuff going on? Am I PMSing? Which right, right. <laughs> Barrett wrote a great article about PMS because she said, I wanted to prove that PMS does not make women more emotional. She's like, but actually, to some extent, because your body budget is taxed when you are PMSing, your emotions will feel bigger. <laughs> so there is like a little bit of a scientific basis, but women should absolutely not be dismissed because of hormones impacting their emotions. Men have hormones. It took a lot of time to research that. Too. I could have just told her. It's just <laughs> larger during that time. <laughs> right. Well, now she, she did the experiments to yes, prove right. it. Right. She proved it. Um, so, so can I just ask this question too, as you're yeah. giving this example, you as a white woman, Yes. Uh, there's a social construct for being angry that's acceptable. Absolutely. It's yes. actually different for a man. If a man was upset about not getting that promotion, he could emote his his anger in a different way. Yes. Um, that would be socially acceptable. And actually, Black women would not have the same luxury as you. Yes. That's 100% true. Yes. Because emotion is so culturally bound and there are so many social rules in each culture around emotion, in our culture of white supremacy – Black women and Black men are not allowed to express their emotions the way white people are without experiencing racially prejudiced 
based uh, repercussions for their emotions. Right, right. And white women can, will also encounter that uh, yes. repercussions mm-hmm. if she doesn't handle herself properly by social standards right. and how she addresses a white male boss, correct? Correct. Yep. So, and everybody listening going, yeah, we know that we've all experienced that, right? But now you have verbiage for it. Now you see what's happening. Um, so I don't know. Did we hit all the three things? Data? Mm-hmm. Did we do it? I don't know. And, I'm, I'm and so the, allergied up, I can't tell. That's right. <laughs> and the difference or the the dichotomy between rationality and emotionality, it's it is, it's ridiculous to tell someone, stop being so emotional, be rational, because your brain doesn't actually separate out those processes. What you might say more accurately is when you are experiencing or constructing big emotions, um, take some time to process that reactivity and make a good decision with all the input about how you're going to act. And emotion is a vital part of decision making because our emotions show us what we value, relate to our values, and actually motivate our bodies to start taking action toward our values. So we cannot make good decisions without being in touch with our emotions. There have been studies done. um, Antonio Damasio has written a lot about these. Um, People who have particular types of brain damage who lose their ability to uh, do emotion in the same way that most people can do – start making terrible decisions and basically destroy their lives because their emotion processing component is gone from their brain. Wow. So if you, I'm thinking of a particular person, so I have to be careful. If you, if you're with someone who really values that they're always logical, right? Like they, they at least try to communicate to the people around them that they have, that they're just so smart and logical, but no emotion. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you say there's something off? Yes. And there could be multiple things going on there. They might be um, lying to themselves. They might actually be very emotional, but they call it thinking. when They're actually emoting because, again, the two are intertwined. And they might actually be driven by their emotions, um, but they just say that they're logical. That could be part of it. They could actually have undiagnosed neurodivergence. Um, they might have mm-hmm. alexithymia, which is um, a problem with the interoception function of your brain, which uh, is the part of your your mind that helps you understand the sensations in your body. And interoception is really key to constructing emotion. So if your interoception is uh, is struggling, you will struggle to identify and express your emotions. So they might actually have some neurodivergence um, and they really don't uh, process emotions the way neurotypical people do. Um, or they might just be, they might have flat affect. You know, they they maybe uh, are emotionally numb and so they don't access their emotions and try not to feel them and therefore don't know how to express them. So there could be a lot of different things going on. Um, but, and but I want to be really careful. Human yeah. I want to be really careful not to, to stigmatize neurodivergent people. When I say there is something wrong, like there's nothing wrong with being neurodivergent. There's nothing wrong with having alexithymia. Right. But if you are neurotypical and you choose to continue to be emotionally unhealthy, then there is something wrong with that. Great. That's a really good 
clarification too, right? Like, hey, you you don't have that going on in your brain. So now now there's something that's unhealthy about you. You're being emotionally unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, I think people have been told by society and in their faith communities that emotions are bad. So I wonder just if some of it is just stuffing and, mm-hmm. and you know. Yes. So let's go back to, because I know my audience is thinking, I want to know what she learned about. I wait, my audience may not care at all, but I actually want to know what did you discover when you started wanting to write that book about Jesus and his emotions 20 years ago? And where are you with emotions in Luke? Like we've talked a lot about and your your work is um, intersection. You are doing an intersection of neuroscience, psychology, sociology and biblical studies and theology on yep. this issue, right? Yep. And some um, anthropology in there too. And some anthropology, <laughs> right. So tell us, I mean, I, I suspect most of us, myself included, have never even thought about biblical studies and emotions. What, what do we find when we mm-hmm. open up the gospels mm-hmm. about emotions? Right. So I picked Luke because it's my favorite gospel and you really have to specialize with a dissertation. It's got to be one little tiny advancement to the academy to write a dissertation. And then you write a hundred thousand words on that little tiny issue. So I've had to narrow it down and narrow it down. I would love to look at emotion in all the gospels and compare them, but that's a future project. Um, Someone who's done that well is F. Scott Spencer in his new book, The Passions of the Christ. Uh, it, It does look at all the gospels. It's a beautiful book. Um, He's one of the leading New Testament researchers doing uh, emotions in the Bible. Anyway, so I had to specialize in one. I picked Luke. And when I looked through Luke in the fall, I counted 158 instances of emotion. I think people are going to get a different number depending on what you consider an instance of emotion, what variations you'd find. But I would encourage people to sit down with a gospel, any gospel, and read the whole thing. You can read most of the gospels in about an hour. And write down all the emotions that you perceive in the text and just see how much emotion is there. There's so much. Um, There's, you know, so many, like so many times angels or Jesus are saying, don't be afraid. Um, That's emotion. Or people are weeping or crying or laughing or full of joy. Um, People are celebrating. People are grieving. People are lamenting. There's so much emotion in there. Um, Jesus is very emotional. He gets angry. He gets irritated. He gets anguished and sorrowful. He's full of joy. Um, he's full of compassion. And Jesus also shapes the emotions of his followers. He tells them, don't worry about this. Worry about that. Don't be afraid of this. Be afraid of that. Don't hate this. Hate that. So he's reorienting their emotions and I think teaching them new emotion concepts. One idea I gathered from Mosquito's work is that socializing figures are really important in our emotional development. Parents, teachers, religious leaders, they socialize people into the socially acceptable emotions for their culture. And I think Jesus is doing that for Mm. his followers. He's telling, he's, he's reparenting them in a sense. Wow. And he's bringing them into the emotional culture of the kingdom of God, which is different from the culture they grew up in. And so he's almost, he's changing their allegiance. And one of the ways he does that is by changing their emotions. So can you give us one example of where you see that? Which by the way, I think that's fascinating. If you could write a book 
for us on like how, cause that could help us reorient mm -hmm. or, right, our own emotions towards kingdom thinking versus yes. what our society has said. Can you give us one example and then can you write the book? Uh, yes. So my advisor has made me promise not to sign any more book contracts until my dissertation is done. Fair. So you'll have to talk to Dr. McCauley about that. Uh, but I do intend to write a book about emotions and discipleship um, as soon as my dissertation is done. Um, so in Luke 12, there are snippets of the same sermon as we see in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. Um, but but actually, like part of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 6 gets moved later in Luke to a different section where um, Jesus is talking about worry. And he says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, because, because God will take care of you. Emotions always have an object. And so he's shifting them from focusing on their needs and their worries and their concerns to God's provision. And so he's saying, instead of constructing worry, which in that case, I did a whole research paper on that Greek word in Paul's, in, in Philippians, and it's the same word Jesus uses here. Um, it's not anxiety. It's not what we think of as worry, because remember, they have a different culture and different emotions. Our worry is not the same thing as the Greek word merimnao. That is a different emotion concept, and we mistake the Bible when we put our emotion concepts onto their, their concepts. Um, so we have to be really careful when translating emotion words in the Bible. So Jesus is saying, don't be of divided mind. Don't be distracted. Don't be unduly concerned with these things. Not don't worry about them at all. Don't pay attention don't to them. Don't give them all like, the weight. Don't, don't give, give it all, all the weight. weight. Don't be right. unduly concerned. Don't ruminate on these things. But construct an emotion of hope and trust in God's care for you and God's provision for you. And the more times the disciples practice that by turning to prayer, by reminding each other, by caring for each other, by meeting each other's needs out of God's generosity, the more they will predict that emotion and the more they will construct that emotion. So it is a long, slow process over time to disciple our emotions. So is every aspect of discipleship. Right. That's right. Yeah. I love that example. So when when someone says to us, uh, don't worry, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like, like how they use that worry and anxiety mm -hmm. from Paul and Philippians is a sin. That's not, we're, we're inferring our emotional concept. On 100%. That, statement. that is not what Paul says. Paul doesn't what? say, don't be anxious. In Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. Paul doesn't say, don't be anxious. He says, don't merimnao, <laughs> right? Don't, he's using his emotion concept. The best we have translated it so far is anxious, but because anxious has changed meaning in English over time, it is now a medicalized word. It no longer is a good translation of merimnao. Um, I think that that unduly concerned is probably a better translation, which is in the lexical range for the word. Um, don't ruminate on, don't be overly consumed troubled by. by, don't be consumed by, don't be distracted by, don't prioritize are all better translations. So for someone, <coughs> John MacArthur, to say that anxiety is a sin is just simply not in scripture. Wow. 
That and set some people free listening to, to this. I right hope now. so. I hope so. <laughs> um, I looked at eight Philippians commentaries when I was working on this research paper this term by wonderful New Testament scholars. None of them call this word a sin. There's, you know, encouragement toward prayer and hope, like reorienting our emotions, but none of them are talking about sin. Paul is not talking about sin in the letter. It's a very friendly, kind, loving, caring letter. Um, the only commentary that calls it a sin is John MacArthur's. So we probably don't want to read that one. Yeah. Um, like the New Testament scholarship does not back that up, but preachers are saying it and these preachers are hearing it from other preachers like John right. Piper. They're not getting it from the New Testament scholars because a lot of scholars are not saying that's what's going on in the text. And this to me puts people in bondage when they hear their spiritual authority say these things. It puts them in bondage, a bondage that Jesus Christ has not placed on them. Oop, you blipped. Are you back? Yep. Are you there? Okay. Yep. Yep. There we go. All right. So, I mean, I'm going to have my husband bleep those out. Uh, you, You say that one of the things this whole 20 years of your life has been about is that you want to have your work produce a better pastoral care in mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. How do you see that looking like? Because, you know, it's one thing to talk about all these things from an intellectual perspective, but you and I have both um, have pastoral uh, hearts, if you will. Mm-hmm. We've been on the ground with people where this makes a difference when we sit across from them having coffee. Uh, what, what do you want that to look like? What difference will all of this research you're doing make? Mm-hmm. Well, all of this work on emotion does need to be coupled with some education on trauma um, because you can be emotionally aware, but if you are not also aware of trauma and trauma's impact on human bodies and emotion, you can unintentionally trigger someone that you're trying to help. So I always want to encourage pastors to get trained in emotional maturity as well as trauma awareness. Um, And so in my years of doing what I attempt to provide as trauma-informed pastoral care, um, I've seen people flourish when their emotions are validated and believed and listened to and welcomed instead of ostracized and condemned. Um, When people welcome their emotions, they are able to examine them and see what pains and wounds and fears some of those emotions are coming out of, and then they can heal those wounds and that that leads to that reactivity. And then they, they feel less reactive and more self-controlled and more emotionally grounded. Um, one of the key tools that I use is internal family systems. It's a therapeutic methodology mm-hmm. that I'm being trained in. And I've seen incredible results in pastoral care using IFS work because it's all about healing your wounds that give rise to your reactive emotions that that feel out of control but it's not an emotion problem it's it's a healing problem the emotions mm. aren't the problem the emotions are just coming out of places that that are asking for your attention you know it's wounded parts of yourself that are saying hey pay attention to me and when you right. pay attention like a parent to a child when you listen and sit with them validate them and comfort them those parts heal and then you feel more in control, in, in, in healthy self-control. And you are more free to express your emotions in healthy relationships and to have that depth of emotional richness in your human connections. So it makes me realize what one of the things you're saying is that 
to be an emotionally healthy person, uh, we have to take time to actually listen to ourselves. So and, much time. Right? It takes time uh -huh. to, to actually stop and say, what am I feeling? Uh -huh. And then asking, or even where's my body getting tense? Uh -huh. Why is my body getting tense? Right? And yeah. then ask, what's happening? What What's underneath here? My spiritual director says I should ask myself, uh, what about, what do you need? What need do you have mm -hmm. that isn't being met right now? Yes. That I'm yeah. to ask myself that when my body and I start feeling prickly, like, but that means I have to stop yep. and think and, and listen to myself. I'm, I'm thinking about many of those people out there listening to this podcast and they're like, I don't have time for that. I mean, you have five yeah. kids, you know, yeah. you have five kids, you're doing your dissertation. You have a husband that travels. How do women and men, but how do we make Tell us what to do here. Mm -hmm. Help us. Give us one yeah. thing that we can start implementing. We don't have time to not be emotionally healthy. Mm. If you have wounds that get triggered and Wait, you become- Say that again to our people. We don't have time to not put the work in for our emotional health. Amen. Okay, keep going. <laughs> because when a wounded part of us is triggered- um, we, you know, we have uh, protective parts of ourselves that are trying to keep us safe and trying to keep us from feeling that pain. And so we have these outsized reactions that carry emotions with them and we can feel distressed and off for days. And that, uh, that does keep us from being present and being productive if, if productivity is a, a value and that's a whole other conversation, right. but it keeps us from doing the things that we need and want to do because we're just distressed and we don't know what to do with it. And we feel all these uncomfortable things in our bodies and our spirits and our souls and we don't know what to do with it. And we, we lose days at a time to that kind of distress. But if we put the time in over years, again, it is a long, slow process to learn to pay attention to our bodies to listen to those wounded parts of ourselves, to ask um, what, yeah, what need is not being met or what am I afraid will happen if I don't have this reaction? What's the real root fear and what wounded part of myself is that coming from? IFS calls that a trailhead. You find a trailhead that you follow down the trail and you find that wounded part of yourself that can be healed. Um, Alison Cook is a wonderful Christian author who teaches IFS in a Christian framework, and her book is Boundaries for Your Soul. That's a great place to start. Um, and, and we invite Jesus in to be with those mm. wounded, hurting parts of ourselves. We invite the Holy Spirit to be present. And then through our, our care for ourselves and through God's care for us and through other people's care for us and those sympathetic witnesses who surround us and care for us, we heal and then we no longer – like when we get upset, we're able to pinpoint it, understand where it's coming from, and take action to feel better and then get back to our lives. And so the work that we put in uh, pays off in the peace and the joy that we get to live in. So it's it's very similar to, uh, hey, women get up and they go work out because they're taking care of their physical body, right? Mm -hmm. and sometimes mm -hmm. it's just so they look beautiful. But often – it's to, to stay strong, right? To stay healthy. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is, yeah, you put the time in for that. We also need to put time in for our emotional health. Yes. And I recognize that not everyone has that luxury. If you are working three jobs, if you have a newborn, um, there's there's so much privilege that goes into allowing us to work out and to work on our emotions. So there's, there right. is 
it's not it's not always possible for everyone. It's not possible for everyone to spend a lot of time and energy on it. If you're going to do one thing to improve your emotional health, I would say develop your emotional granularity, which is learning to say specifically how you feel. So ask yourself, where am I feeling this in my body? What emotion precisely am I feeling and why? And if you just get used to doing that, you will be light years ahead of most people. And so let me ask you this question. Uh, is there, like, I know my husband's doing some work on emotions and the, the, his counselor gave him a chart mm-hmm. of a bazillion different yeah. words. Can I, do you have a specific one you can send me and I can upload mm. that link for people to look at so that they have a variety mm. of ways to express what, to, to look at and say, oh, I'm not actually angry. I'm this. Yes. I didn't know that, right? Like if you have limited vocabulary, you're not going to be able to pinpoint it. Yes. Uh, so there is a really cool new app. It's free. It's called How We Feel. And you can download it and put it on your phone and you can set reminders for check-ins throughout the day. And it gives you this beautiful color-coded chart uh, of emotions. And you can you know, poke one and it expands and it shows you the, the emotion, a little definition. And so you chart how you feel when you find the specific one. And then it gives you just a little short note entry where you can say like what you're doing, what happened, why you feel this way. Um, And then you eventually start to see a pattern over time of what emotions you tend to be feeling. And it really helps with emotional granularity. And then for kids, there's a wonderful deck of cards called, it's the emotion card deck from Little Otter. Uh, And it's their little animals, beautiful watercolor animals. And each one has an emotion with a definition and then some questions you can talk about with your caregiver. My kids love these cards. That's fabulous. Thank you for that. I, I, my husband's going to be so excited to know there's an app. He's going to gonna love this. He's app. He's going to love so cool. the app. <laughs> I actually think I've used that app. Um, so I want to thank you for uh, doing this research, uh, for chasing after this, because I think it's unusual for people to be studying emotions in the scriptures, helping us understand ourselves from a biblical perspective, from a Jesus perspective. Um, One of the things I want to emphasize again before we say goodbye to Becky is when you sit down and think about your emotions and ask questions, I want to highlight one thing she said, and that is, you know, you can invite the spirit in to talk to you about what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. I've done that often. And you're right. I'm privileged. I get to sit and have these conversations with Jesus, but I'm always shocked at how kind and sensitive and caring the spirit is to me when I open myself up and invite her in to have a discussion with me about what's happening. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised at even what she offers for healing, like what she provides. Like it's, it's, it's a beautiful um, experience of encountering God's provision in our interior. And so I really want to encourage our listeners to do that. Um, I know it's scary sometimes you're feeling angry and then you sit down and you invite the spirit and you think you're going to feel condemnation. Often we're sho- I'm shocked at how gentle mind Jesus is with me and yes. how beautiful. So really want to encourage that. Becky, thank you so much for your time. Um, I know that our listeners are going to want to follow you now because you have a, so much information that they need. Where do they go? How do they find you? How can they learn more from you? Yeah, absolutely. I've been trying to post short, like minute and a half reels on Instagram almost every day. And I also post them on TikTok. So on TikTok, I'm at Becky Castle Miller. 
on Instagram. I'm at whole emotion, W-H-O-L-E, whole emotion. Um, and then I also have a Substack newsletter. I write three times a week on emotional health in the church and share some of my research and thoughts about emotionally healthy. And that is beckycastlemiller.substack.com. Yeah, I've been reading on Substack. You're writing great stuff. So I want to encourage the listeners to go there, get her information. Um, and thank you for listening out there. And today, just once, you know, whether it's download the app, get the cards, stop and ask yourself a question, just start implementing emotional health. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.